Hello and welcome to the ISIS Magazine podcast. My name is Lucy, I'm also here with one of the editors, Barney, and today we're hosting the first episode of our series, Writers in Conversation with the ISIS. For our first interview, we are extremely excited to welcome the writer William Boyd, who has been aptly described by Sebastian Folks as the finest storyteller of his generation. Born in Accra, Ghana, 1952, Boyd grew up there and in Nigeria, and was educated at the universities of Nice, Glasgow and Oxford. His first novel, A Good Man in Africa, burst onto the literary scene in the 1980s, won the Whitbread Award and the Somerset Maugham Award. His following novels, which include Any Human Heart, The Blue Afternoon and Restless, have also received widespread critical acclaim and have been translated into over 30 languages. He divides his time between London and southwest France, where he joins us from today. Welcome to the podcast, William. Glad to be here. Thank you very much. Well, it's a delight to have you here, so thank you. Um, You said in your email that you're joining us today from deepest, darkest rural France. So could you tell us a little bit about what it's been like over there? Have you um, self-isolated there? What's lockdown been like? Um, Actually, I was in London for for most of the lockdown. I only got down here about two weeks ago, in fact, as soon as the travel restrictions were lifted. Uh, We've had this, it's it's an old farmhouse uh, in in the southwest, in the very south of the Dordogne, we've lived here for uh, nearly thirty years, and so it's a very much a home from home. And it was very nice to get out of London. But we are in the middle of the countryside; we're surrounded by huge oak woods and uh, quite isolated. But uh, and so it's you know we we are we are isolated. But um, when you go into town, um, life in France seems pretty much back to normal. There are a few masks are worn. Um, limited number of people in shops, but it turns out that the the, the southwest the, and the Dordogne in particular were amongst the lowest regions in France to have the virus, and so there's a kind of um, we've beaten it sort of uh, sensibility here, which is kind of complacent because now the summer is underway, the place is being flooded by tourists who are coming from bits of France, in particular, which have very bad. Uh, COVID numbers and so I, I'm a bit worried about a spike down here but so far so good and it's very nice to uh, just have a change of scene after you know 112 days in London. Thank you. So your latest novel Trio is published at the beginning of October. Uh, can you tell us a bit about it and how it came to be? How it came about? Yes it's, a, it's an interesting, I mean all novels have their own kind of unique uh, generation and this one came about of, with, from an idea I had which I have now abandoned but I, I thought you could write a type of, you could write three novellas, this was the idea, hence the title Trio, and you could read them in any order and they would make still make perfect sense. So it had this, this kind of experimental na- narrative idea in my head and I blocked the whole thing out and I think it would have worked. Um, but uh, but uh, I, I then realised it was a bit gimmicky, and um, something that sort of pleased me intellectually might not please readers. Now the idea was you bought these three novellas in a in a box set, a little uh, slipcase, and they have different colours. That'd be up to the reader to choose which colour they started with and you know, construct their own narrative. And the three novellas were all told from different points of view. Um, but so basically, I've taken that notion of, of three characters uh, and their their stories and their secret lives, 
and woven it into an orthodox novel, but you cut from chapter to chapter to the, to the different characters, two women, one man. And they're all involved, uh, it's set in 1968, um, and they're all involved in various ways in the making of a slightly naff swinging 60s British film uh, in Brighton, uh, which has got the, again, the classically 60s title of Emily Grace, Emily Bracegirdle's Extremely Useful Ladder to the Moon. Um, those are the sort of films the British film industry was making. But it's not about the film so much, it's about the secret lives of these three people. And um, there's a, a, the epigraph to the novel comes from Chekhov, where he says, most people lead their real, most interesting lives under cover of secrecy. And that's what I've been examining. What are people's secret lives? And in this case, uh, one of them is uh, a woman who's a, a novelist who's married to the director of the film. Uh, the other is the producer of the film, uh, a man, and a young American actress uh, called Annie Vickland, who's starring in the film. They, their secret lives are uh, complex and quite dark, and uh, but uh, that's sort of running under the surface of this rather comic, uh, silly British movie. That sounds fascinating. I'm I'm so excited to read it. You mentioned the 60s there, and I don't think they would ever have predicted this pandemic. So I guess my question is, the the atmosphere that you wrote this book in is very different to the one it will be published into. And of course, bookshops are now open. But um, do you think the pub, like the climate that this book is being released into will affect how it's read? Um, I don't think so, actually. I think um, as far as I can understand, you know, reading has gone up enormously in this pandemic and uh, um, I, I think that the sales of ebooks in particular have been huge um, and so I think that people would, are just looking for some kind of diversion or some sort of uh, intellectual stimulus and I don't think um, the fact that this is set you know way back in the, in the, in the last century is going to you know, inhibit people uh, reading it if anything uh, people are extremely keen to get away from the kind of mundane boredom of living with a pandemic and um, so I suspect that the escapist aspect of, of fiction is is going to be a, a, a real draw and a, a real strength and I hope you know a, a real uh, book will sell well but of course what you can't do in the, in the same way as you used to is, uh, is promote it and I, I, I have a kind of one-man show that I take on the road, which is a 90-minute monologue, you know, anecdotes and so on, and that we had a six-venue tour booked in various theatres around the country, but that's all gone by the board. So now we're doing everything in live streams, and it'll be very interesting to see if it works, you know, if, if, a, if a live stream interview is going to sell as many books as, you know, going to a literary festival, something like that. So we'll see, but um, I don't think the, I think the appetite for for reading has, has gone up massively. Thank you very much. So we mentioned in our introduction that you were born in Ghana and also lived in Nigeria as a child. Um, can you tell us a little about what it was like growing up there in, um, in West Africa? Yes, it was um, an extraordinary childhood. Um, some, some journalist once said to me, you, you're the last of the line. And I thought, well, nobody likes to be the last of, of any line. But I, I guess I am in that um, my parents spent their working life in, in what we 
began as a colony, which was a Gold Coast when, when I was born. And my father was a doctor and my mother was a teacher. And um, they spent their entire adult working lives in Africa. I don't think that happens now. People go out on a two-year contract or a five-year contract. Um, but the other thing that was astonishing in retrospect about West Africa, and particularly Ghana and Nigeria, is there was no white settler class there, unlike you know Kenya or the, the, the then Rhodesia, or let alone South Africa. Um, all the Europeans, we called ourselves, were on were just there to work, and then they went away again. So there were no second generation, third generation white people there, and so the the atmosphere was completely racially tolerant and free. And as a as a as a child, as a kid, or as an adolescent. Um, uh, I could go anywhere I wanted fearlessly. And so there was an extraordinary privilege that, which I realized I have had that I, I could inhabit these two African countries um, almost like a, a Ghanaian or a Nigerian. Um, and when I last left Nigeria when I was in my early 20s, but I could walk through the city of Ibadan, which is where we lived in Western Nigeria at midnight uh, without the faintest tremor of worry or anxiety and go to a club or go to a cinema. Um, and so I had this, this, you know, rare and now gone uh, experience of, of being, you know, a, a, a white child in a black African country, um, but one where there was no segregation, no, no uh, racial issues. Uh, it was amazing. I mean, in Nigeria, uh, when I was living there in the late sixties, I was in my in my late teens. Um, the country was torn apart by military coups and then by a, a really savage civil war. And I lived through the uh, Nigerian civil war, the Afrin war. But um, I and I think back to some of the experiences I had. It stopped a roadblocks being searched, having you know AK forty sevens pointed at you, um, being ordered out of bus, buses in town, um, uh, armed armed soldiers everywhere. But never once did I feel uh, threatened or, or insecure. And so it's astonishing um, in a bank of experience that I've managed to acquire um, as a result of living there. Um, and I've, you know, I've pillaged it in my fiction, but I also think it's had, had a huge effect on the kind of person I have become and the attitudes I have. Um, and uh, <clears throat> you know, it's all thanks to that strange, exotic, and you know, wonderfully liberating um, upbringing I had in, in West Africa. Thank you so much for telling us about that. You mentioned there that um, your experience growing up in West Africa was hugely formative for you as a person, but also for your fiction. Um, it laid the foundation for your first novel, A Good Man in Africa. It was immensely successful for a first novel. And how did you get into writing? What made you want to be a writer? It's interesting. I mean, it was actually my fourth novel. I had three unpublished novels before A Good Man in Africa was um, accepted. But I think I wanted to, very early on, you know, in, in the end of my school days, I, I was contemplating what my adult life might be. Uh, and I come from a family of, you know, Scottish um, professionals. Um, all my, my father was a doctor, my uncles were engineers and farmers and uh, dentists and things like that. And so there was no artists in the family at all. 
But for some reason, when I was 17 or 18, thinking, what the hell am I going to do with the rest of my life? I, I, I decided that I wanted to be an artist of some kind. And that initially, I was thinking of, of the plastic arts. I was, I was good at art. I did art A-level. I liked painting and drawing. And I was thinking about going to art school. But I think more to the point, I realized I was temperamentally unsuited for a normal job. And, uh, and so I sort of almost, you know, willfully or unilaterally thought, well, I'll be an artist, I'll be a novelist. If I can't be a painter, I'll be a novelist. Of course, I didn't know any novelists. I had no idea how to set about it. Um, but I, I went to university in Scotland, I went to Glasgow University, and they were very enlightened. This is 19, early 1970s. They had a resident writer, um, and they, that was the first novelist I met, a man called William Price Turner, now long forgotten. But he was uh, very encouraging to me Again, I entered a short story competition, which I won, which made me think uh, I wasn't fooling myself. And then when I came to Oxford um, to do a, a, a DPhil, I thought, right, now I'm really going to try and become a writer, whatever that involved. I had my safety net of academic life, and I ended up teaching in a college lecturer at Oxford, but I was always wanting to be a, to be a writer. Um, and I suspect it was because, you know, initially I'd seen some some movie where there was a, a, a writer sitting at a typewriter bashing away and then he stood up and mixed a drink and wandered out onto his balcony and looked out at the swarming streets below and sipped his drink. And I thought, yes, this is the life for me. Um, it was a kind of fantasy about what being a writer or being a what Chekhov calls a free artist was, and I, that's what drove me. Um, I didn't become a free artist for quite a while. I, I uh, followed the kind of parallel academic path uh, at Oxford. Um, I became a, I taught at quite a lot of colleges, um, uh, Univ, St Hughes, Somerville, and then I got a college lectureship at St Hilda's. Um, but all the time I was writing, and in fact I published three books at Oxford while I was at Oxford. And, um, and actually wrote a film as well, which was made. And uh, as soon as I realised that I could earn my living writing, I, I quit and moved to London. And uh, that's when my life as a free artist began in 1983. And uh, so far, so good. Keeping the show on the road is the main thing. But it all came about from, you know, a vague desire to, to be, you know, free, I suppose, not to have a job not to have to get go to work on Monday morning at nine o'clock. Um, and um, luckily, I was able to pull it off. What was your academic area? What were you, what did you research for D4? Um, I was, I wrote a uh, thesis on the uh, philosophical background to the poetry and prose of Percy Bysshe Shelley. So it was the romantics, what? really. And um, I never finished my thesis. Um, I, uh, I wrote about three quarters of it. Um, it was a kind of it was a kind of excuse in a way um, to allow me time to to write, and I, w I wrote a lot um, while I was at Oxford. You know, notionally doing my thesis, I also became uh, uh, quite a regular reviewer on the Sunday Times, and I became the TV critic of the New Statesman, as well as writing novels and short stories and screenplays. Um, but I. Uh, you know, I had some I had some very good supervisors at Oxford, and I, I kept up the pretense. Um, and 
uh, vice final supervisor, Dr. Park at, at UNIV, um, when, when I said I was, I was giving it all up and moving to London, he said, well, what you can do is you can withdraw yourself officially from in statu pupillari, I think it's called, which means you can just put your thesis on hold. And then at any time in the future, if you want to pick it up again, you just rejoin statute pupillari and you can submit it and have it examined and so on. So in theory, I've had this enormous pause of you know, nearly 40 years with my uncompleted thesis. And I'm sure, pretty sure I won't ever uh, complete it, but uh, the, the potential is always there yeah. to finally get my, my doctorate, but uh, I suspect it won't happen. Right. You didn't mention that you were part of the ISIS you involved with our magazine. Can you tell us a bit about what that, what that was like in those days, the sort of work you did there? Yes, I, I, one of the things, I, when, I, when I came to Oxford in 1975, uh, one of the first things I did was join the ISIS team because I, as part of my plan of, of writing, you know, of uh, writing anything in a way. And um, there was an interesting um, bunch of people at the time. Um, the, the editors in my day were a man called uh, Tom Barnicote and uh, uh, Emma Smith, joint editorship. Um, and amongst the contributing editors was me and a, a guy called Stephen Garrett, who became a very successful television producer, and another another writer called Pico Ayer, um, who has had a you know, career as a novelist, but primarily a travel writer who has written for Time magazine for years. So. The three of us were in our early twenties, all working for ISIS, which was in, in in a sort of house in those days, as I recall, sort of converted into offices, and it was real analog publishing. You know, we it was you wrote your piece, it was typed up, somebody stuck down on a piece of paper, then photographed and sent to some litho printers in in Cowley, and run off like that. But it was a real scissors and paste job. But we were quite, um, I mean, I, I wanted to meet other writers. It was one of the things that I, that was my ambition of, of, of uh, joining ISIS. And in the course of uh, my tenure there, I interviewed and wrote up interviews with uh, Martin Amis, who I'd actually met, in fact, in, in, in 1969. Um, Gore Vidal, Frederick Raphael, they were my three big profiles that I wrote for, for ISIS. And, um, illustrated them as well with my own pen portraits of, uh, of the authors but uh, it was just a, it was a way of of you know flexing muscles of, uh, and, and sort of seeing if there were muscles to be flexed and I wrote reviews and I started writing short stories and entering for the ISIS short story competition got second place once third place the next time so it was um, a, a real proving ground for me and then I started writing um, reviews for little magazines as well, but it was really the, in a way that the, 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 the work I did for ISIS allowed me to send it off, send these columns or these pieces off to little literary magazines or the, the Times Literary Supplement or, um, mm. to try and get work. And, and sure enough, I did. I started reviewing more widely. And um, once I had a kind of presence in a sort of national press I my, my ISIS days were kind of numbered in a way and uh, yeah. but they had, they had served their purpose and um, the short story that Roel, uh, Roel Dahl ju judged a short story competition and I, he gave me second prize 
and it was a short story that I then took and developed into this novel that I wrote, A Good Man in Africa, which turned out to be my first novel, but in a way the glimmerings of A Good Man in Africa were published in, in ISIS in 1976, and Good Man in Africa didn't appear till 1981, so again it's quite an interesting trajectory no such no no overnight success there <laughs> but it all began funnily enough in a with the isis short story competition that's really inspiring to hear thank you william and talking of short stories apart from novels you've published several collections of them including on the yankee station and most recently in 2017 the dreams of bethany melmoth the short story definitely seems to be enjoying a kind of comeback at the moment what attracts you to the form well, I've always written short stories um, alongside my novels. And I think initially they, it was a way of getting published. Um, it's much, it was much easier then in the, in the late 70s and the 80s to, to find magazines that would publish your short stories. It's very hard now to think where would you, maybe, I suppose you could put them online. But um, in, in, when I started writing, you, uh, many women's magazines published short stories, little literary magazines, um, I had uh, BBC had this slot called Morning Story, which every every morning Monday to Friday a short story was read out, and I had quite a few of the of my stories accepted. So it was a way of um, getting your name in print initially. And as I was writing short stories, I also wrote a couple of novels. Um, you can see I wasn't spending much time on my my thesis, um, <laughs> but they were kind of apprentice works. Again, the you know, novel is. It is a complicated thing to write. It's, it's hard to immediately grasp the, the rhythms and the, and the length required. And so those two unpublished novels um, were very important in my um, kind of learning curve of becoming a novelist. But um, when my um, first novel was published, um, it was in a way thanks to uh, the recognition that my short stories had received, because what I did was send in, I'd had about maybe seven or eight stories published in various magazines, and I sent this little collection in to two publishers who published short story collections. Uh, one was uh, uh, Hamish Hamilton, and the other was Jonathan Cape. And um, I got a letter back almost immediately from the managing director of Hamish Hamilton saying he really liked the short stories and he'd like to publish them. But he, he wondered if uh, he could publish a novel first. This is when I told my little lie. And I said, well, funnily enough, I have written a novel featuring the character that appears in three of the short stories, Morgan Leafy. He said, well, could we see it? I said, well, it'll take me a while to get the manuscript. And that's why I sat down and wrote it in a kind of quite hot uh, dynamism uh, in about um, nine or ten weeks, sent it in and he published it first and then he published the collection of short stories but it, again my strategy if you like had worked because it was the short stories that got me through the door and then um the novel you know almost wrote itself um but it was it was it was not a, a shrewd thing to do it was a kind of obvious thing to do then but now um short stories are published but if you were wanting to find the magazines that published stories regularly, there are very, very few. So it's um, you know, my strategy at the time worked well, but it might not work today. But it certainly 
gets you noticed, I think. If you've written a good short story, people will maybe ask if there's a novel in you. Many of your novels, um, like Any Human Heart or Sweet Caress, Sweet Caress, are kind of whole life novels, in so much they follow one character over several decades, often meeting figures we recognise from history, uh, Wolf, Joyce, Picasso, and Hemingway, to name a few. Do they take a lot of research to put together? Um, and how do you go about sort of structuring a novel of that kind? Well, they do take a lot of uh, research, actually, and it's a funny kind of um, uh, sub-genre of the novel. It, there aren't very many whole-life novels, actually, and you, even the, the big Victorian novels, you know, Dickens, Thackeray, Trollope, are not whole-life. They, they, they end with the character in their 40s or something like that. So um, those are there's a research issue in that you're covering a, a, a great passage of time, usually. Um, and then there's a, also a very complex structural issue, because if you're going to write about somebody who's lived 80 odd years, you can't cover every year of their life, you'll write a 2000 page novel. So um, a lot of decisions have to be taken uh, to do with you know, ellipsis and elision, you know, when do you, when do you stop one sequence and start another and how do you fill in the gap between so there's a kind of technical issue as well but um i've written i guess um three long whole life novels and a, a very short one in the shape of uh, nat tate an american artist because he killed himself very young his life isn't uh, particularly long but um each one posed its own problems in that um, great swathes of the 20th century were uh, involved in these characters' lives. And of course, as a realistic novelist, it's your responsibility and your duty to make the background and the texture and the period seem convincing and authentic. So I, I do a ton of research. And, and again, you probably throw out 90% of the stuff you've researched, but it's all about finding that particular detail that does a lot of work for you, but you need a lot of, you need to mine a lot of ore before you find the nugget. And uh, um, and I, I suppose I'm used to it now. I mean, uh, uh, the the novel I'm going to write next after after Trio is going to be another whole life novel, maybe my last. But um, uh, I, it's going to be set resolutely in the 19th century. So I'm already beginning to think of the research I'll need to do to cover you know, decades of the 19th century. Um, but it's a, it's a challenge, but it's also, you know, it's, it's stimulating, it's fun, you know, and it, it's there's something about writing a whole life novel that provokes a, a different response in the reader, I think. I've written an article about it, about the, the subgenre. Um, and I think because you, the reader, have all the information on, on that person um, from cradle to grave, you almost have a different relationship with that character than you would in an orthodox novel, because you know, because it, because it does cover the whole life and the ups and downs and the triumphs and tragedies and so on. You are able to sort of construct a mental portrait of that of that fictional character that is different from the fictional portrait of a of a character in an orthodox novel. And I found that the reactions to my whole life novels are are you know, different from the one from my orthodox novels. People seem to identify with the character in a way that uh, is particularly strong. It's very interesting. Um, and uh, one of the reasons I wanted to write um, 
sweet caress was having written two long 500 page novels about two men's lives i wanted to write a woman's life from cradle to grave um just to see if the effect would be the same and then it is true that the, the readers react differently uh, the, the the effect of the character seems more potent when you've got the whole life there rather than just part of the life i think you're totally right because you stay with that character for so much time and I personally found Any Human Heart and Sweet Caress so moving because of that. Um, you mentioned Nat Tate there, who I do want to get onto later. But firstly, just to ask, um, there are many parallels between your life and Logan Mountstuart's in Any Human Heart. You've both lived in Africa and France, studied in Oxford, um, spent some time in New York. And it's a very unoriginal sort of journalisty question, but how much does your life inform what you write? Well, I would say, uh, of course, it informs what I write, but I'm, I'm not an autobiographical writer, actually. Um, I think it's one of these binary divisions. You can, you can see what writers are autobiographical and what writers aren't. Um, and of course, a lot of any writer's life goes into their fiction, but I don't use my life as raw material. Um, Evelyn Waugh, for example, who, I, who, who is a writer I know intimately, his work I know intimately, is a very autobiographical writer. Um, almost all his novels, even the most outlandishly comic, are based on things he actually experienced. Um, but I'm, I'm not that type of writer. So even though Logan Mount Stewart um, goes to many of the places that I've been to, um, he's a totally different human being from me. And um, his experiences of life are totally different from mine as well. You know, in, inevitably he's caught up in World War II, which I managed to miss. Um, but he, he's, a, he's a creature of my imagination. I made him up, or I, I drew on other examples to create a composite uh, figure. And, and, and even though he winds up living in a, in a house uh, you know, that looks rather like the one I'm living in now, um, He's, a, he's a, a completely different person from, from me. Um, and that's true, I think, of, of all my characters. I, um, I think that I, I, I like to invent, you know, I like to make things up, I like to use my imagination. And I often say to, to you know, younger writers, who say, um, don't write about what you know, write about something you don't know anything about, just set your imagination to work and imagine something you couldn't possibly have experienced. Very often, your imagination is an incredibly useful route to whatever the truth might be. Um, stuff I've made up um, have, has been confirmed as being incredibly close to the, the real thing. For example, I wrote a novel about a surgeon, um, and many I've got quite a few surgeon friends who've read it, and so they're curious as to how I know so much about the kind of mental um, mental stresses and strains of being a surgeon but I, I just you know used my intuition used my imagination did a certain amount of reading and um, in that curious you know curious alchemy that uh, that is a novel um, um, it's it comes out very close to the, the reality although you've won a fair number of prizes in your life you said in 2018 that you would never win another prize literary prize in your life, which I thought was a really interesting thing to say. What did he mean by that? Yeah, it's funny. You know, I then immediately went and won a literary prize, having said that in, in France. Um, but uh, I think it's a sense in which um, the the 
literary world has changed in the in the in the in the many years I've been writing. I mean, next year it'll be the fortieth anniversary of the publication of A Good Man in in Africa, and the the the, the literary world has changed, in my opinion, beyond recognition. Even though I've been writing, you know, throughout those forty years, um, and prizes now seem to me to have a different kind of role in the literary uh, universe. Um, they're more about discovery, it seems to me, uh, rather than reward. And I think that um, they're looking, you know, whether it's something unconscious, but it's something to do with the zeitgeist, but it seems to me the prize juries are looking for new voices or new publishers um, and, uh, and, you know, established authors aren't really interesting to uh, prize juries and so I that's I think that's why I, I said you know, you know I, I won quite a lot of prizes and they, they were you know they were very nice to win but I, I wasn't counting on winning any others because in a way you know my day has come come and gone as far as prizes are gonna and then of course I I went and won a prize in France so who knows um, uh, it was a it was a, a sense that um, and I, it's shared by all my generation, I would say, of writers, most of whom I, I know, you know, that, that I think you'd find that Ian McEwan and, and Martin Amis would agree absolutely with me. Um, but uh, um, who knows, you know, but, um, it's, it's, it's very fickle, but I just had a sense that in the, in the way that the, uh, the literary world had changed, changed while I'd been writing, so have prizes, they, they reward something else rather than the so-called best novel or, of the year. Mm. Do you read reviews? Do I read my reviews? Yeah. Yes, yes I do. Um, I, I, and I, I'm still a reviewer myself, actually. I, I write a lot of journalism still. Um, yes, I, 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 I'm curious to, because I, because I am a critic as well as a, as a novelist, I know that world very well, and um, I know how it works. Um, and uh, having having dished it out myself uh, for many years, um, I, I'm bound to get the odd spanking in return. Um, and I'm always curious to see what uh, has provoked the animus. Um, and so I read them. Uh, nobody likes getting slagged off, of course. Um, uh, that old that old line, you know, a bad review may spoil your lunch, but it shouldn't spoil your dinner. Is very true, and um, uh, I'm I'm not, I'm not thin-skinned, <clears throat> unlike many of my uh, novelist friends. Um, I can uh, I can r ride the punches, um, but I'm also not. Um, I don't read the good reviews in in, in any spirit of elation either. I think I'm, I'm quite objective and I know what works in my novels and what maybe hasn't quite come off. Um, but I am, um, it's, it's, uh, I think it's a temperamental thing. You know, I know lots of very successful novelists who are still brooding about a, a bad review they got in TLS 20 years ago. So, um, it's part of the territory um and um i think it's uh, it's always quite interesting to know who likes you and who doesn't thank you in one of these whole life novels you mentioned earlier 
wrote a fictional biography called, called Nate Tate, an American artist. An elaborate hoax presented as a real biography. In your words, Nate Tate was an abstract expressionist who destroyed 99% of his work and leapt to his death from the Staten Island Ferry. His body was never found. At the book launch, you went some way to persuade people that Nate was a real, Tate was a real person. Art critics and David Bowie were in on the joke. Is it true that people began to reminisce about Nate Tate and even fell for it at the launch? Yes, it's, uh, it was a, it's a fascinating um, experiment in a way. Uh, I was working on, uh, I was on the editorial board of this magazine, Modern Painters. It's a very serious art magazine, came out four times a year. Um, very eminent uh, editorial board of you know, professors of art history, um, you know, cabinet ministers. Um, and um, one day the editor, um, Karen Wright said, is there any way we could get fiction into a serious art magazine? And I stuck up my hand and said, why don't I invent an artist? You know, that was almost kind of a joke. But also on the editorial board uh, at the same time, who joined the same time as me was David Bowie, because, um, and it was, a, I, I got to know him, you know, fairly well in the 90s, because we were the two new boys, we all sat together at the editorial board dinners and things like that. And Bowie had a small publishing company um, called 21 Publishing. And when I, I wrote The Life of Nat Tate, which was about, in the book it's 80 pages long, um, and uh, it's illustrated with found photographs and some few surviving drawings of uh, Tate's. Um, Bowie said, why don't we publish this as a little book? I said, you know, fantastic, great idea. Um, it had appeared in the magazine. Um, and so he, he and his team produced this fabulous little coffee table monograph printed in Switzerland with color illustrations and, lots of uh, photographs that I had found and captioned. And um, he, Bowie, I think this was his idea, he said, let's launch it and, uh, in New York and in London at a big party and see what happens. Well, I wanted it to be a very slow burn and it's an elab elaborate hoax. Um, uh, it could, couldn't be done today because of Google and the internet. It's a, it's a pre-Google, uh, hoax but um i i covered my tracks really well and i i um had two friends who participated in it uh, one was gore vidal who the, the novelist who remembered meeting nat tate and the other was uh, john richardson who was picasso's biographer and john uh, who i had got to know knew picasso and he knew georges brack and ferdinand leger he was really part of the art world. And so I said to him, would you join this hoax, John, and um, uh, introduce uh, Nat Tate to Georges Braque and Picasso? And so he said, yes, be delighted. And so when you're reading the book and you're beginning to feel skeptical, I mean, I have never heard of this guy and, and uh, how, how extraordinary that almost all his work has been destroyed and begin to suspect it. And then you come across a reminiscence by Gore Vidal who says, yes, I remember Nat Tate, he was a good-looking boy, but he drank too much. And, and then John Richardson anecdotalizes about the dinner that he gave for Nat Tate, where Picasso was there. And, and you think, well, it, it must be true if those two uh, remember meeting him. And, uh, and then the artwork and the photographs are, inc are incredibly convincing, I think. Um, uh, 
and uh, the the whole thing was then presented with this all down to Bowie. He he then asked if his his friend Jeff Coombs, um, the pop artist, if he could have throw a party for the launch uh, in Jeff Coombs' studio. And he didn't tell Jeff Coombs um, about the hoax. Um, and so was, so we had this very glittery party in Manhattan on April Fool's Day, 1998. And we were going to have an, the exact same kind of party in London uh, at a new restaurant. And we had all the, the young British artists were going to come along, um, very glittering crowd. I mean, who wouldn't come to a party hosted by David Bowie anyway? So we had, there was a great gathering of people. Um, and amongst the conspirators was the art critic of the uh, independent newspaper, a man called David Lister. And at, at the Manhattan party, uh, Bowie uh, read out extracts from the novel, um, Deadpan, and he actually had provided the blurb for the, for the book. Um, and uh, David Lister went around the room asking people, had they ever heard of Nat Tate? And of course, people dug a hole for themselves and jumped in. Um, yes, what a wonderful artist. Such a shame about his tragic suicide uh, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and we were about to do the same thing in London a week later. And I had been interviewed by quite eminent journalists about this discovery, this, this lost painter I discovered. And I was a slightly slightly awkward position because, um, you know, I'd been lying to these people basically about Nat Tate and how I, I'd come across, come across him doing some research. Um, but David Lister felt he had a scoop. And in the, in, the, in the intervening week between the New York party and the London party, he blew it wide open. Um, front page of the Independent, British novelist hoaxes Manhattan art world. Now, how many people were hoaxed and for how long, I don't know, certainly a, a good few. Um, but it became a, a, a sort of 24-hour global news story. I was interviewed by Jeremy Paxman on Newsnight. Um, radio stations around the world wanted to know about it. And all because I think people love a hoax, and particularly if you're hoaxing pretentious <laughs> literati or literati, uh, even, even better. And um, it, it's, it, it blew up in my face, as it were, it detonated, and it's never gone away. Um, it, it's um, it's all, always mentioned in, in the top 10 world hoaxes. Um, every time there's a hoax, I'm rung up by newspapers to ask what it's like. And Banksy was outed by the mail. I was asked to write a piece about what it's like to be outed as a hoaxer. And so I, I'm down in, I'm filed under hoaxer. Um, but it's, of course, not just the sort of elaborate nature of the, of the, of the book and the hoax, it's to do with David Bowie's uh, fame and renown, because he was involved in it. And he was one of the key conspirators and he published the book. I think that's why it's, it's endured. I mean, it's about to be translated into Italian and published in Italy. And I know I'm going to be interviewed out of my skin by Italian newspapers because of the Bowie connection. When Bowie died um, and he, it, you know, I was asked to write a lot about the Nat Tate hoax because it was a side of his life that was quite private actually and not many people knew about. 
Bowie's involvement in the art world beyond being a you know, kind of collector, but he was, you know, he was a he was a journalist. He interviewed artists for modern painters. He sat in on the editorial meetings and gave advice. He was, I think, it allowed him to be, in a way, his his private self rather than his public self. And of course, he was had to, um, you know, he was on his metal. Just the fact that he was a, a rock icon cut no ice with professors of art history. And um, so it was a very interesting period of his his life. And I know that the reason that the hoax has, has lasted so long, um, you know, over 20 years now, um, and still going strong, um, is because of the Bowie connection. I love so much reading about it. I don't think you see hoaxes like that so much anymore. So it was really oh, yeah. enjoyable to read about. And you've described in the past that it's a kind of investigation of authenticity, that hoax. Do you think all books have that duty as well, to investigate authenticity? Well, I think, I think they, they, they do, or they have to seem authentic, particularly if you're writing in, in the realistic tradition, which is what I do, you know, the broad tradition of the, of the realistic novel. novel. Um, if it doesn't seem real, if the people who populate your stories don't seem believable, then I think the book has failed. So there is a, a real sense in which authenticity and verification and plausibility lie at the, the, the root of the you know, fictional enterprise. And I think you, if you, you have to take it very seriously if you're purporting to present a world that is real. Um, and I think that's, again, part of the, the novel's power. It's, um, it allows you I'm paraphrasing some quote that it allows you miraculous access to the minds of other people in a way that real life doesn't because other people are mysterious and opaque but in novels they're not and so if you want to know what makes people tick in whatever era or whatever geographical location um, read a novel or read a good novel and you'll, you'll get that sense of what's going on in people's minds which you can't get from talking to People, however close they are to you, because inner lives are are secret, uh, which is one of the reasons, coming full circle, I, I wrote Trio to sort of show this idea that your your secret life, the life you lead in secrecy, is somehow truer to your person than the life you live and lead in public. So um, yes, I think it's very important if you're writing a realistic novel to take great pains to make that world seem as as textured and idiosyncratic and and true as, as possible. Thank you. And thank you so much, William, for giving up your time to talk with us today. We really hope that you've enjoyed today's discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow the ISIS magazine on Facebook or Spotify and do look out for future episodes in this series. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>